0: Within 10 years' time, we are looking at the dissolution in value, probably pretty complete dissolution, of oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, the utility industry, the auto industry, the banks that hold paper in them, pension funds and insurance companies that are invested in them. This is going to be the mother of all economic disruptions, and we have no clue what to do about it. We need to take care of the people who are going to be unemployed, We need to transition these industries into useful activities. If we're going to not roast the earth, we need to leave 80% of the carbon in the ground. My colleague John Fullerton said, on whose balance sheet are those fossil assets? Somebody owns them, and it's somebody's business model to dig it up and burn it. He calculated we are looking at stranding 20 to 30 trillion in fossil assets. By comparison, the 08 financial collapse was over 2.7 trillion in stranded mortgage assets. So this is an order of magnitude greater economic stranding coming at us within 10 years.
1: Hi, this is Joshua Spodek and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying If others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Hunter and I start by talking about Limits to Growth, the 30-Year Update. Limits to Growth, when I first read that book, it felt like this is how I look at the environment, except they went much farther because they put numbers in, they did calculations, and the results, I highly recommend reading the 30-Year Update. Hunter and I speak about responsibility. Over and over again, I hear people say, we can do it. The question is, will we? Do we have political will? That to me is leadership. I hear it over and over again. I hope that everyone picks up what I picked up more than anything else from what she said was a call for action. She does say, as you'll hear, there's a lot of reasons for optimism, but that will come with a lot of work. She also takes a tack, which I agree on, of working with organizations and replace them when appropriate, but help them move along. I'm cautiously optimistic about the inevitability of the transition by 2030 that she talks about. It certainly was something that I didn't expect to hear. I recommend the videos that she described. I'll put the links with the Stanford researcher. I'll put them on the link on the page. But I still keep reading how, say, making cars more efficient leads to more miles driven. Anyway, let's listen to Hunter and wait until you hear what she says about this economic transition. It's huge. It's coming. It seems inevitable. If we don't prepare for it, it's yet one of the many other things we have to prepare for. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spudek. I'm here with Hunter Lovins. Hunter, how are you doing?
0: I am excellent. How are you, Josh?
1: I'm very good, especially because it's embarrassing to say this, but we recorded before. it. Uh, something happened in the recording. I don't know what happened. and But now we're in person, and before it was online. So I'm glad to meet you in person. This is the Bard MBA. Yes. And in, uh, not just any MBA, because one of the things I want to talk to you about is education and in educating leaders, educating environmental leaders, things like that, because I feel like that's what you're doing. And you know a bunch of people here, and you're very friendly, and it's, it's great to see you in this environment. I want to go back, though, to talk about when I read your stuff, I was reading things. I felt like I had just recently discovered myself, and you were writing like 20, 30 years ago.
0: Yeah. Uh, if any of us were any damn good, we'd have solved these problems a long time ago. And we all stand on the shoulders of giants Essentially, everything that I say was said before by people like Buckminster Fuller or E.F. Schumacher or Dana Meadows or so many people who laid the foundations for all of the work that I do. So I think we all come at this with a certain degree of humility.
1: So, all right, you said Dana Meadows, and I just gave a talk on systems thinking, not a talk, a workshop. And... Now I have to go on Limits to Growth. I presume you've read it.
0: Oh, yes, years and years ago. But I would suggest you don't read it. It was written in 1972. If you're going to read any of it, Dana's subsequent book, Beyond the Limits, is a much better statement of the basic thesis, brought more up to date. That was 92. And then Dennis Meadows, Jorgen Rander's book, 40 Years After Limits to Growth,
1: Yeah, I read the 30-year update.
0: Yeah, then you've got it. The the numbers haven't changed except they've sort of gotten worse.
1: They've gotten, yeah, it's it's like they've selected out which of the, okay, when I read it, I felt like this is how I've always looked at the environment, but they've done the numbers.
0: They did the numbers. Well, again, they were working off Jay Forrester's massive model, World 3, back in the late 60s, early 70s. So it, tried to pull together all the knowledge of what was happening on the planet, where the limits might be as of 1970.
1: Right. So big error bars compared to today. Well, today's error bars are still big.
0: Sure. There's more we don't know than that we do know. And yet Johan Rockström and the team at Stockholm Resilience Institute, with their work on planetary boundaries, have again restated that there are real limits to human activity on the planet. There are science-based limits beyond which life as we know it cannot be sustained. And if we continue to live in what Dana called overshoot, then there will be consequences. The recent paper out of Deep Adaptation says one of the consequences of climate change, of going beyond the limit of the climate stability on the planet, is massive social breakdown within 10 years. So, without a doubt, the the situation is growing more and more urgent. The science is growing ever more dire. So, you have a lot of young people now saying there is no hope. I mean, don't do this because it'll put you in a very bad mood, but you can Google near-term human extinction and find what purports to be science saying that humans go extinct within 10 years. And so, outfits like Dark Mountain in the UK say grieve, and then get over it. It's too late. So party on. I think that's the most profoundly irresponsible position one can take. We know everything we need to do to fix the problems. We have all the technologies we need to fix the problems. What we need now is political will. And literally as we speak, millions of students around the world are in the streets calling for action on climate change. And the wonderful young woman, Greta Thunberg, in a brilliant interview in the Financial Times a few weeks ago, said, oh, the adults are now saying, thank God, the children are rising up. They will save us. She said, no, we won't. We're too young. We
1: need the adults to act. Yeah, when I talk to leaders of companies and, you know, they'll be at the quarterly meeting or the, and they'll say... You young people, you'll fix all the problems that we've caused. And I'm like, you're abdicating responsibility. Yes. You could act. I mean, that's my consulting business is to work with leaders of companies to get them to want to change, which is the big thing that I see missing is, you know, I'm a big fan of legislation. I'm a big fan of of more science and education. But
0: we know what we need to do and we just need to damned well do it. When rabbits are threatened, they freeze. When humans are threatened, we entrepreneur. So, again, I teach at the Bard MBA because we are taking young people who want to go into business and make a difference and showing them how to do that.
1: Oh, Okay, so let me go back to where I was before. You, early on, I think, I mean, when I was younger, I protested places that now I want to work with, not because I like what they do, but because I like what they can do. And the potential for – the way I put it is like the delta, the potential delta is much greater there. That seems like something you – well, I would say you pioneered, but then you, I'm sure you would be humble and say someone before you pioneered it. But nonetheless, you were doing stuff that other people weren't. What did you see early on?
0: Well, I, I, people say, how did you get into doing this? And my answer is I'm not sure that I had a whole lot of choice. My mother worked in the coal fields with John L. Lewis or, organizing mine workers. My father helped mentor Cesar Chavez, Martin King. They were around the house when I was growing up. <laughs> wow. So this is what you do. You try to make the world a better place. And protest has its place. It is critically important when people see something wrong, they do something about it, get up on their hind legs and speak out. But solutions are even more important. Protest simply says something's wrong. We need to change. How do you change? You work with the institutions that exist or you replace them. Replacing them is extraordinarily messy. And a lot of people get hurt. So to the extent that we can work with the existing organizations, whether they be in government, whether they be in companies, whether they be in the nonprofit sector, that I think is where the real leverage lies. So recently, General Mills announced that they are working with their supply chain of farmers to encourage them to plant cover crops, deep-rooted plants, that will take carbon out of the air and put, them back, put it back into the ground so long as there is also animal impact. Grazing animals, eating the cover crops, which is what jump starts the carbon sequestration in the soil, feeding the biological health in the soil, which is what mineralizes the carbon. When the pioneers went across the Great Plains, they found 10 feet of thick black soil. That black is carbon it got there through this coevolution of grazing animals and grasslands so want to solve the climate crisis go back to grazing animals in the way in which nature did it dense packed then by predators now by electric fence and we can take carbon out of the air put it back in the soil profitably people like gabe brown the north dakota corn and soybean farmer who was going broke said, well, I'm going broke. I got to do something different. So first he went to no-till. He stopped breaking the soil and inverting it. Then he planted cover crops. Then he added the animal impact. He's gone on some of his paddocks from a little over 1% soil organic matter, carbon, to over 11%.
1: Is he connected with General Mills or is he independent? No,
0: he's independent, but he's an example that General Mills took. They realized This guy is now wildly profitable, growing a diversity of grain crops, corn, and animals. We can do this with our supply chain. And it's all because General Mills started buying up little organic companies like Annie's with John Foraker, who is now a senior official at General Mills, Cascadia, Gene Kahn went into General Mills and are helping to transform these large companies from the inside. Same thing happening at Unilever, buying Ben & Jerry's, now seventh generation. The leaders of those little companies are going up into the the mothership and transforming it from within. This is very hopeful.
1: Okay, you you started answering a question. When you said it all started with General Mills, I thought... I thought you were going to say something got General Mills going. Was it that did. one of the John companies Farford. that they acquired? Okay. Yeah, they
0: acquired Annie's. 80. They Before that, they'd acquired Cascadia with Gene Kahn. So it comes back to leadership. It comes back to the individuals involved having the courage to say, we can do business in a different way and it will be more profitable. So we know how to solve half the climate crisis at a profit through regenerative agriculture. You solve the other half at a profit, through the transformation that's now happening in energy. Uh, We had, as part of the BARD program last night, we had a webinar with Tony Seba. Tony is a Stanford prof, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, who says, inevitably, by 2030, the world will be renewably powered because of four things. Fall in the cost of solar, the other renewables, fall in the cost of storage, batteries, the electric car and the driverless car, and then a couple of business models, Storage as a service and transit as a service. So, fall in the cost of solar. In Colorado, the coal loving utility, Excel Energy, a couple years ago said, We need more capacity. Uh, Who can supply us 1,100 megawatts, any price, any source, bid? The fossil.
1: And they wanted coal, right? When you said coal loving. Coal
0: or fossil. Mm hmm. They run a bunch of coal plants. They figured natural gas would be the cheapest. Natural gas came in at $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour. So, uh, Wind came in at a little below $0.02. Cents. Solar, Tough. a little above $0.02. Cents. Wind plus solar plus storage, $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour. Excel said, no, bid it again. Uh, the, the tariffs have been introduced. So people did. 58,000 megawatts bid. And the numbers were essentially the same. Wind plus solar plus storage, almost a cent below the lowest fossil bid.
1: 25% less. Yep. Mm -hmm.
0: So Excel said, oh, went to the Public Utility Commission and said, how about we shut down two coal plants and pledge to go two-thirds renewable? And the PUC said, well, sure. Since then, Excel has said, we're going to become 100% renewable. (laughs) It's the math. This is not about polar bears. So solar wind storage is now cheaper than fossil. And this is true increasingly around the world. We are very near what's called grid parity, where these things are cheaper than building any kind of central power station in the traditional utility model. The electric car General Motors recently said they're going to shut down six, seven manufacturing facilities because they said we need to get ready for the electric car and the driverless car, autonomous electric vehicles, the last two of Tony's drivers. Essentially, every automaker has a program now electrifying their vehicles. Companies like Volkswagen said, we're going to go all the way. We're going to electrify our entire portfolio. Volvo has said the same thing. The driverless car, there are about 48 companies now working on autonomous vehicles. They're on the road today. They're running around. China has said we're going to phase out the internal combustion engine. India has said the same thing. Many European companies have said the same thing. If you go to autonomous electric vehicles, what you want, which is to get from here to there, will be tenfold cheaper than what you pay today to buy Ensure, fuel, and maintain a private internal combustion engine at tenfold cheaper. You're going to do it.
1: How about airplanes? Because that airplanes. That, the research I've seen shows that there's no one doing anything for long haul. Well, what? what do you know?
0: There are people working on long haul electrification of the airlines, but that will be a while coming. The best way I've seen is a brilliant little company out of Chicago called Lanza Tech. They are take. You know? The flue gas from anything, uh, anything that produces carbon emissions. So they're working in China with a steel mill, in India with an oil refinery, in Japan with municipal solid waste. Feed it to microbes and they get uh, precursors for jet fuel and yoga pants. Anything that we now use petrochemicals for. Jet fuel. You now have carbon neutral jet fuel.
1: The potential for it.
0: It's being made right now. Richard Branson's one of the investors in this company. He runs Virgin.
1: Yeah, I was just interviewing a guy from um, – he's a physicist from – Guys a degree at Caltech. And he was saying that's a potential game changer is the, you just can't beat the energy density of fossil fuels. You ocean, can't. Oil.
0: Of, well, of hydrocarbon fuels.
1: Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to come from oil. It doesn't have oil. to
0: come from oil. And this is the point. Attack is taking what otherwise would be CO2 going into the atmosphere – and turning it into something useful. And the real game changer there is if they can do it from municipal solid waste. Use microbes to deal with solid waste. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's a potential.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, it's real. These plants are up and operating. Now, they, it is not what is supplying the majority of jet fuel. So then you have companies like Alaska, United, that are using biofuels, typically half half biofuel and oil based jet A. Mm-hmm. But yes, we can keep flying around. There are people who say we need to fundamentally transform our lifestyle and all go back and live very simple local lives. That may be a superior personal choice, but it's not what we have to do in order to solve the climate crisis. We know how to solve the climate crisis at a profit, first through renewables and transforming how we power and move ourselves around second through regenerative agriculture. A group of us, uh, some scientists from Tufts, ran a calculation. This is a back-of-the-envelope calculation that if we use the best of regenerative agriculture on all the world's grasslands, by 30 years from now, we can be back to 280 parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. We are now at 411, which is to say higher concentration of CO2 than humans have ever been subjected to before. The the Earth has. There were crocodiles and palm trees in Greenland, but humans have not been around with this amount of concentration of CO2.
1: I'd love to see that calculation because that's... It's
0: in the book that I wrote recently with three colleagues called A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life.
1: I'm going to check that out. (laughs) And... Now, you said I certainly am a fan of living simpler, more local life, which is what I'm doing. And I think there's also in, – in, there's, there's in between lots of other things and in particular that – well, this is maybe more about plastics and, and things that I found that – actually, it's, it's energy use as well. I would estimate that I used probably less than the average American five years ago.
0: The figures on your – Emails certainly indicate that you use a great deal less. Yeah.
1: Now it's something like a tenth of what a typical American uses. Now I don't compare comparing myself to an American is I'm gonna overstate it, but it's like I have killed fewer people than Charles Manson too. It's it's not I'm comparing it to zero. Not zero because I'm a living creature, but you know, a lot less. There's certainly a plastic use I could compare with zero because people live without plastic for a long time. And I would say that the first 75% reduction Okay. The first 5% reduction was hard. I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, I didn't know how to cook, you know? And so I was eating a lot of steamed vegetables, which a meal here too, not a big deal, but six months in the time that learned me that I learned how to cook, I had a lot of steamed That's vegetables, right. like, but I wasn't asking anyone for help. And if I, you know, I could have done that a lot faster.
0: There's a lot of help out there. If you want to simplify your life yeah. and the people who do it say they are now healthier, happier, they're glad they did it. I, on the other hand, live a very high carbon footprint life. I was Mm -hmm. in Korea three weeks ago. I'll be in China in a week and a half. I flew here from Colorado. You know, when I have my students do their carbon footprint and they're shocked, I say, guys, I'm much higher than you are. And two thirds of all carbon emissions ever by humans have been caused by 90 entities. So don't beat yourself
1: up too badly. Mm -hmm. Well, even so, I would say the first, after that first 5%, the next 70 or 80% was pure improvement of my life. I mean, the food, after my taste buds recovered from, I was, well, I mean, I I had a lot of packaged food. I had a lot of, you know, I grew up eating a lot of Doritos. And so, you know, after while it takes a while for the salt and sugar to not be, like, not to expect that. And then it's just pure, like I spend less money. I spend more, people come over to my place more. It's more community. It's more fun. I throw out the garbage like once every year, like less than that. And that's just pure improvement of my life. Not that without changing anything, except that I shop at the farmer's market instead of at the supermarket. And
0: And that's an improvement in and of itself. You get to talk to the people who are growing the food and have real
1: conversations part of why I spend less is they keep giving me food. I'm like, all right, I'll take it. Like there's, if you're smiling as you hand it to me, fine, I'll take it. Cause you know them and you meet them and it's like community. But I think for a lot of people, you don't have to change your lifestyle at all. Just like buy less junk mm-hmm. and eat less junk food. And I think, so even without changing your lifestyle, even with just getting rid of a lot of crap, there's a huge benefit without, without it being local and all these other things. And that's actually something that – here's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And most people are kind of interested in it, but I haven't gotten pushback from someone. I haven't talked to someone who can, who's looked at numbers and think. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm getting at. When I look at the – there's a difference between efficiency and lowering total waste. Yes. And many times when we get more efficient, we make the price lower and you get Jevons paradoxes and rebound effects.
0: Actually, Jevons paradox is a bit of a myth. There is about a 10% rebound. After that, you're saturated. You don't want to sit in your car more hours because you have a more efficient car. Because you have a more efficient air conditioner, you're not going to run it at full blast 24-7.
1: So the things, what I look at is not, am I going to run my air conditioner more, but are more people going to get air conditioners who wouldn't have otherwise?
0: No. They, as soon as they have the ability to get an air conditioner, they will. And if they get a more efficient air conditioner, they, the total system will use less. So you want efficiency. Efficiency is basic good housekeeping. And we used to say the solution to the energy crisis, the climate crisis is efficiency, 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 10 times efficiency, then look at supply. The economics are now saying, look at supply first. Utility scale efficiency programs come on three, four, five cents a kilowatt hour. If solar plus storage, wind, solar, storage is $0.03, efficiency has to be below $0.03 before it's economically worth doing. So it may just be we do a hell of a lot of renewable supply, and the more efficient you are, the more comfortable you'll be. So you ought to be doing the efficiency because it improves the quality of your life, it improves the quality of the system, it lowers total system costs, but efficiency is now competing with renewables. That never used to be the case.
1: So the the picture that I often think of is, I mean, I go back to the steam engine and people, okay, so the watt steam engine more efficient than any before, significantly more efficient and coal use went up. So for each individual use, it would go down, but overall more people have steam engines than did before. But again, the limiting factor
0: was not the inefficiency of the steam engine. It was the recognition of the services that steam engines in general could deliver to society. People will continue to want the services. So the trick is, can you deliver those services in ways with overall lower system impact? So this is transit as a service. If you have autonomous electric vehicles, you get from here to there with one-sixth the number of vehicles on the road, no parking, and thus you can turn what are now parking lots into
1: parks. What I think is a big thing, which is changing a lot of goals of the system. Okay. My understanding is that Uber has made more congestion in the cities now. Sure,
0: because you have the private vehicles plus the Uber vehicles.
1: So we have to get rid of the private private vehicles. vehicles. What
0: does that is the economics of transit as a service being tenfold cheaper. Now, there are downsides to this. Autonomous electric vehicles are autonomous because they don't need a driver. We have 8 million drivers in the United States. If we shift to AEVs, both for long-haul trucking and for city transit, that's 8 million people we need to do something with. The people in Lordstown, Ohio, who were manufacturing General Motors cars, are looking at unemployment. As a society, as a a nation, we suck at just transitions. And this is very, very important.
1: These are the values of the system that I think... We're really big into growth. We're really big into externalizing costs. And we could turn parking lots into parkland, but we might not. We could get rid of private ownership of cars, but we might not. And that's, what, well, that's where I- Well, there's a
0: difference between get rid of, i.e. draconian, the government tells you, and the economics driving toward this because delivering transit as a service is cheaper and it's better. When the economics drive to this kind of an outcome, it's hard to resist it.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like there's a leadership component that is—
0: Oh, it'd be nice.
1: Yeah, I think that, to me, I have not looked at the numbers in detail to see if all these things work out because it,
0: There are two videos you ought to watch. Uh-huh. Start Google SEBA, S-E-B-A, C-R-E-S, and you'll get a video that Tony shot in Colorado about two years ago. Then Google SEBA— world affairs, and you'll get a second video, watch them in that order, and you'll get a really good sense of what Tony's talking about. Since you like numbers, he has a report out called Rethink X. You go to the website, Rethink X, and you can download the report and crawl through all of his numbers. They're hard to argue with.
1: That would be very refreshing to find. Partly, I also feel that what's driving me is that when I made these shifts, my life got better. If people look at these changes as something they want to do, which I don't think anybody does. I mean, anybody, I mean it's a rounding error does. Everybody else is like, well, this is deprivation and sacrifice. And that's what I want to work on. Because I'm, I'm always thinking about getting votes. And I think that comes when people change their behavior. That right now the price of gas drops, people have their SUVs. And I don't think that's making them Actually, happier.
0: Actually, auto sales are declining. And when, and pretty much everywhere in China, they're down something like 13% last year. Prediction is they'll be down 25%. Do
1: you know what's driving that?
0: When people are asked, they say they're waiting for the electric car. Auto sales are down in the US. They're down in Europe. And again, when, when you ask, they say, yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for the electric car.
1: Just kind of letting the, use this one a little bit longer than they yeah. would have otherwise. Yeah.
0: I know in my case, well, I drive an electric car. I have one of the first-generation Leafs, which I love. I have so far from a standing stop beaten a Porsche, a Mercedes, (laughs) a BMW, a Mustang, and one of those big smoker trucks. My husband calls it the hippie car, Mm -hmm. and he loves driving it. He loves uh, pulling up by one of those big coal-rolling trucks, and they look down and blow diesel smoke all over him, and then he takes off and leaves them in the dust.
1: So that's really exciting.
0: But mine is, my battery life is declining. Again, this was one of the first generation before they had figured out how to do that. The new ones out will have, gosh, in my case, almost three times the range. And I'm now looking at the new Hyundai, the Kona, which the analysts say is superior even to a Tesla. I mean, I'd love to own a Tesla. I haven't got that kind of money. Mm -hmm. And... I keep thinking, if Tony's right, within two, three years, there will be autonomous electric vehicles, and I would be happy not to not drive. Not to get a car, out, yeah. If I can get what I want, which is from here to there, tenfold cheaper, I'll do it in a heartbeat. I can do my email while I'm on my way to the airport or going to the grocery store. I was in Vegas in December for the National Finals Rodeo, and whistled up a lift, and up comes a dialogue box, would you take an autonomous vehicle? i said, mean, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. In the event, I got a drivered one. But these things are on the road today. And because they <laughs> first obey the law, which humans don't, mm-hmm. they will be safer. Mm-hmm. Yes, they will kill some people. And <laughs> over 6,000 <laughs> says- pedestrians die every year in drivered car pedestrian accidents.
1: Yeah, I, I can't Cars imagine that. Are dangerous. Yeah, I can't imagine. I'm sure there'll be a transition period. I'm sure it's going to be safer in the long run.
0: It'll be safer Even in the short Humans are great for a lot of
1: things, but they fall asleep too.
0: And they text and they get drunk and they want to beat their neighbor. And AEVs don't. They obey the law.
1: And I guess you would say that there's a maximum amount that people can go from one place to another. So you're going to max out the, the sure. energy usage on that.
0: Again, the energy usage will be from the sun. These things will be powered by solar, by wind. That's what I do. I have a five kilowatt system at the ranch, solar system. I have batteries in the garage. Again, mine are old. I have old lead acid batteries. I was talking last night with the woman who's the CEO of a great little company in California called Simplify. They build lithium ion ferrous phosphate batteries. Because they don't have cobalt in them, you know, the Tesla batteries, the batteries in your cell phone have cobalt in it. Cobalt is a toxic material. It's a conflict mineral. So the lithium ion ferrous phosphate batteries don't get hot. You know, when you fly, they say don't put any batteries in your checked luggage. It's because the damn things catch on fire from time to time. Mm -hmm. These don't. They're a superior non-toxic battery. They have much better loading and cycling and charge and discharge rates. So I was talking with her. I said, I want some of your batteries to replace my old lead-acid batteries. But the point is, my leaf is fueled by my solar panels. I drive on the sun.
1: Now I want to ask you a selfish question. (laughs) With all the connections you have and installing solar in your home, I have a nice big southeast-facing window in my Greenwich Village apartment. And I've been thinking of putting solar, just seeing how much I could power for solar. Could I get off the grid?
0: In your apartment on one window, no. But you can go to, uh, what is it, Harbor Freight, and for, I forget what it is, $170, $200, bucks, buy a solar panel, mm-hmm. which will charge a number of things in your home. If you hook that to a battery, and it, unless you're a good electrician, talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. That's what
1: I, yeah, that's what I was asking. It's like, are there yet kits where I can just do it myself, or do I really yes, need— Yes, there
0: are kits, but— Again, talk to somebody who has done this sort of thing before okay. and make sure you're doing it right. Batteries can be hazardous. Batteries can outgas. You want to do it
1: right. So this is another thing where probably it's going to get, within a couple of years, it's going to be trivial to for people to put some solar in. Totally, totally. Because when I was away and I took everything out of my fridge and I unplugged it and I came back and I was like, no use. But my bill didn't <laughs> change because my bill is like, the electrical part, my actual usage is like nothing. So very you're eaten up by for, the
0: demand charge. Because the, you have a connection, the utility is charging you.
1: Yes. And I want to go to my neighbor and just run an extension cord out the hallway into my apartment and just say, look, I'll pay half of your bill. It's still going to be less for both of us. Right. But I don't have any to do that.
0: <laughs> this desire is driving the potential destruction of the electric utility industry. If Tony is right— And I think he is. Within 10 years' time, we are looking at the dissolution in value, probably pretty complete dissolution, of oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, the utility industry, the auto industry, the banks that hold paper in them, pension funds and insurance companies that are invested in them. This is going to be the mother of all economic disruptions. Mm -hmm. And we have no clue what to do about it. So this is something we do need to get on. This is part of this just transition. We need to take care of the people who are going to be unemployed. We need to transition these industries into useful activities. By way of some numbers, uh, carbon trackers, great little outfit in the UK, which some years back said, if we're going to not roast the earth, we need to leave 80% of the carbon in the ground. Mm -hmm. My colleague John Fullerton said, on whose balance sheet are those fossil assets? Somebody owns them, Mm -hmm. and it's somebody's business model to dig it up and burn it. He calculated we are looking at 20, if Carbon Tracker is right, if if we do what Carbon Tracker says, Mm -hmm. we're looking at stranding 20 to 30 trillion in fossil assets. By comparison, the 08 financial collapse was over 2.7 trillion in stranded mortgage assets. So this is an order of magnitude greater economic stranding coming at us within 10 years. Last November, Carbon Tracker came out with a report and said, peak fossil 2023, and the amount that's going to be stranded is $25 trillion.
1: The way you put it, that's, if it becomes more efficient not to use it, then it's, it, I guess I would say it's not that we strand it, it's value goes to zero. It's, value becomes, it's uneconomical to get. Yes. So someone's sitting there and thinking, okay, on a very small scale, Uber comes out and suddenly a taxi medallion that used to be worth a million dollars is now, now worth nothing. Or yeah. It was worth like a hundred thousand and people commit suicide over it. And exactly. Now, and exactly. that's for each person. That's a very big deal. But in terms of the New York city, it's like nothing, but what you're talking about is not nothing. It, it's
0: not nothing. It yeah, it's, is the it's collapse huge. of the global financial system
1: or the, <laughs> I keep thinking of the, that, that scene in uh, Apollo 13, the movie when, um,
0: Houston, we have a
1: problem. Well, there's that. But then after that, there's there's like the, the top guy in mission control. This is in Houston. And, one, and he's saying to the other to the guy who has to deal with the press or the press guy is saying like, this has gone wrong, that's gone wrong. I don't know what to tell these people because everything's gone wrong, this and that and this and that. And the mission control head guy is like, I know this could be the worst disaster in NASA's history. And the guy below him overhears this. And that's the guy who's like actually doing more things. And he turns around and goes, With all due respect, sir, I believe this will be our finest hour. And, you know, it's two ways of looking at the same thing.
0: That's right. When rabbits are threatened, they freeze. When humans are threatened, we entrepreneur. It's time to get to entrepreneuring. The guy I saw outside I gave a hug to is Alejandro Crawford. He teaches entrepreneuring here at the Bard MBA. And these are the kinds of things that we teach our students. What's a business model and how do you seize it? How do you implement new ways of doing things that are truly disruptive, that make you a lot of money, that make the society a better place? Let's go.
1: Oh, man, you're going to love my book. (laughs) Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Now I have to switch a bit. The, the, the last time I talked about your, your my environmental values and, and acting on them, I forget. So uh, I like to ask my guests... Something's driving the environment. Is something you seem to care about?
0: Well, anyone who lives in one ought to, as my old boss David Brower used to say.
1: And so, and it's different for everyone. Like, what is it about for you that drives you? What do you feel when you think about the environment?
0: Trying to make the world a little bit better than I found it. So in a way, it's the old Boy Scout motto: be prepared. <laughs> leave the world better than you found
1: it. So, what's What's good? What's bad? What's, I'm trying to get at what, uh,
0: why do I do this?
1: Yeah. What's, what's underneath? I don't, I don't know if that's an easy question to answer. It's or, not,
0: um, uh, again, uh, I, it's the way I grew up. It was the example that my parents left me, the example of the people that they worked with. I remember when my mother came home one day and said, well, we're not eating grapes anymore. I said, why not? I like grapes. She said, Cesar's boycotting them. To this day, I have a hard, I, I look at a grape and I think, who picked that grape?
1: I'm the same. Yeah, same with Nestle. and the-
0: Yeah, was it responsibly done? And in the case of grapes, you know, the, the farm workers union won. And so grapes, most grapes, if they came from the United States, by and large, grapes are, are okay to eat then you have to worry about what's sprayed on them and all the rest. You can drive yourself nuts trying to be totally responsible, and so I don't. I try to work on the macro issues and let the rest take care of itself, but when I can do one thing, dot, then I try to do it. So when I order a drink, no straw thank you. I don't buy bottled water, except every now and again I'm in a place where the water isn't drinkable and I'll drink water out of a plastic bottle. Mm -hmm. And so, again, don't beat yourself up too bad, but every day do one thing. What can you personally do today that will make a little bit of a difference? If we all do it, it'll make a huge difference. This brilliant young woman, Greta Thunberg, who every Friday stepped out of school and sat in front of the Swedish parliament with a sign saying climate action, is now, yesterday was uh, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow, I
1: didn't and, know that.
0: And I'd say there's a pretty good chance she will get it because literally today, all over the world, there are millions of students walking out of class calling for action on climate change.
1: Yeah, I have a slightly different way of putting, a lot of people say, if enough people do these little things, they add up. I won't argue with that, but what I really think is a bigger effect is that if you do the little things, then the big things are no longer big. And then the little things enable you to do, to do the big things. And the big things are what add up.
0: The big things are what add up. And so, again, it, it's worth remembering that there are 90 entities that are responsible for two-thirds of carbon emissions. And those are the ones that we need to be targeting. The when you say
1: entities, you mean companies? Or-
0: companies and governments. The oil majors, the coal majors, the sovereign wealth funds like Saudi and Venezuela. And to the extent that the shift to renewable energy... The shift to autonomous vehicles, well, to electric vehicles, then autonomous vehicles, renders these companies unprofitable. That will be a big thing.
1: Yeah, they'll push back.
0: Of course they will. And that means we all need to call for more of this action wherever you have the choice to buy an electric car as opposed to an internal combustion car, to take public transit as opposed to whistle up a gasoline powered taxi cab. And when you get the option to take a autonomous lift, take it.
1: So this is the leadership part that I I think is really key that of because everybody counts and a lot. Okay, that's a whole other thing.
0: Well, everybody counts. And one of the most important things that you personally can do is to the extent that you have any money, ask yourself, what is my money doing? Is it helping the earth? Is it hurting the earth? So a couple of years ago, a group of us got together, created a company, Change Finance, to enable people to invest their money in truly fossil fuel-free companies. We launched on Wall Street a um, year and a half ago. And so if you want to have your money out of fossil, go to the website, changefinance.com, and look at how you invest.
1: This is Someone just wrote me this week. And was like, I've been reading your stuff, and what do you think about investing? And now I've investing I gotta go by the page is to hugely
0: send. important.
1: Yeah, talk to the Norway. All yeah.
0: investment has impact.
1: Yeah, if you're an owner of a company, which is what investing is, then it seems to it's hard not to say that you're responsible for what that company's doing. And do you want them doing what you want, or yeah?
0: Yeah, who whose companies do you want to be owning? Do you want to own companies that are behaving in ways that are responsible? or companies that are irresponsible. In the long haul, if you own irresponsible companies, your investment will be worth less. Those are the companies that get sued. Those are the companies that have toxic spills that they have to pay to clean up. Those are the companies that have a harder time attracting and retaining the best talent. So you ought to be investing in responsible companies if all you care about is the growth of your money. If you're beady-eyed, recreationally challenged, and don't give a damn about the earth, you ought to be investing responsibly because it's a better investment.
1: I mean, yeah, my uh, my consulting business now is growing is to work with the leaders of companies to for them to see that to for them to lead that change within the company.
0: We do much the same. And I work with companies from Royal Dutch Shell and Walmart to Interface and Patagonia and Cliff Bar. Big companies, little companies. I help. Through our entrepreneuring work here at Bard, and I also consult for a wonderful group called Unreasonable Impact that mentors young entrepreneurs with companies that are going to do something good for the earth or for people. The mental model of the leader is critically important, both in the outcome for people and the planet, but also outcome for investors, shareholders. Because again, the companies that behave more responsibly will, over time, outperform.
1: In, in music, to my, given the situation, which I wish we didn't, <clears throat> we weren't in, music to my ears. Because that's, I believe, that's where I'm trying to work. And uh, uh, I appreciate it. And that. Now I remember in our earlier conversation, recording now lost. I remember saying, like, if only I'd met you 30 years ago or 20, any time it could have saved myself a lot of time and gotten to where I was faster.
0: It's okay, you're where you are, and that's the only choice given to any of us is, how are we going to spend today? Tomorrow doesn't exist, the past is gone, it's just, how are we going to spend today? So, I choose to spend most of my days going down the road, climbing on airplanes, sleeping in hotel rooms, as opposed to living at my ranch, which is very beautiful, with my own little vegetable garden and my own cows. I could live that simple life. Well, I couldn't, I've tried. I can do it for about six months and then I get itchy. There's work to be done. So I go back on the road.
1: I'm trying to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about that some other time. I, one of the things I've, I invite guests at their option, given what you described, what the environment means to you, with the grapes, with people and the family and all the things you said. I invite people to act on something, to do something that they weren't already doing and not having to fix all the world's problems overnight because a lot of people get hung up on like if it's not everything, it's not worth doing. But it can't be telling someone else what to do. It has to be something measurable. So it can't be just like raising awareness, uh, which is fine. I don't want to stop that. But I wonder if, if you'd be interested in doing something that you aren't already doing. And it feels like you might be already doing everything <laughs> that you've No, no, no. no.
0: There, there are many, many things that I can do differently. And not uh, forever.
1: Think, you know, just yeah. like,
0: People say, what can I do? And I tend to quote my friend, the folk singer, Kate Wolf, who said, find what you really care about and live a life that shows it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I try to do that.
1: Anything you haven't done yet that you could do for a bit to and then share the experience? Uh,
0: I haven't thought of it yet, but uh, no doubt if I uh, scratch my head long enough, something will pop up
1: care to give it a shot right now?
0: No, because if I could think of it, I would have. I endeavor to live a conscious life. Everything from when I go through a door looking behind to see if I can hold the door for someone who's coming up, to picking up a piece of trash if I see it, to uh, if I'm driving and there's a wreck, I will stop. I was a street medic for 15 years. I know a lot about emergency medicine. Uh, sitting on an airplane, every now and again the voice comes over the PA is there anyone medically trained on board? I will always get up and go. Worked for years with a brilliant young man in California. Well, he's not that young anymore, Andy Lipkus, who founded a group called Tree People. And he said, Whatever happens in your life is your responsibility. Hemingway said, Everything's your fault if you're any damn good. Mm-hmm. So I endeavor to take responsibility.
1: This is actually, the unexamined life is not worth living has stood the test of time for a reason, I think. And this is what's happened with me. When I, you know, when I talk about the after the first 5%, the next, that 80% reduction, 70% reduction after the first bit, it was increasing what you're talking about.
0: It improves your quality of life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I I feel like most Americans are missing out on that. They are. So the more someone says, makes it like a smart goal, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-based, then the more chance there is of it happening. Now, you've done these things enough that you can, you're very skilled at picking something to do and doing it, it feels like.
0: And realizing I can't do everything Mm -hmm. and not beating myself up if I fall short. Uh, Last night, uh, I was sitting with this CEO of Simplify with Eben Goodstein, who runs the Bard program, ordered some margaritas and they came with straws in them. It's like, uh, yeah, I forgot to say no straw, thank you. And it's like that's fine.
1: Yeah, you're not going to sleep over that. But um, I
0: will try harder the next time to remember to say, "Oh, straw, thank you." Yeah. And what's what difference does my straw make in the scheme of things? Nothing. But again, it's my effort to be more conscious about my impact on the environment.
1: So, because I like to have, pe- I like to invite people back for the se- for a second episode to share what that experience was like of what the thing was that they did. So, if there's nothing specific, then I'll hope to have you on a second time to hear what you came up with and what you did. Uh, uh, what well, the experience or a third was
0: like, time, as the case as may be. be.
1: As the case may be. So I guess, well, if there's nothing that specifically comes up now, then I'll just get in touch with you at some point and say, did anything... Did, did between,
0: anything come up?
1: Yeah, that you could share the experience well, hopefully. Of. And I'm trying to give listeners, you know, this is all for the listeners, is for, for them to hear what it's like for people at different stages and to and different views and different perspectives and so forth. Cause I don't want, I'm very prone to, to say how great my change has been and to neglect, to share the challenges that, that it it wasn't so easy. Yeah. I
0: had a straw on my drink last night.
1: Yeah. And, and how do you get to where, you know, I certainly spent my share of experiences in life, not necessarily related to environmental action, where I would do something and then I'd just give up and be like, ah, this is too hard. I don't want to do it. And, I had to learn over time. Sometimes you, you win, some you lose, some sometimes you. you sometimes Sometimes it's, you,
0: you're right now.
1: Yeah, sometimes you, you just say, you know, that's not a priority of mine, but then this one really is. And, and I, I'm not going to let the setback set me back. And, uh, and I want people to hear that. So that's why I do this. And also to make it the part where I ask people about what the environment means to them. I, I thought when I first started this, I thought everyone cared about the environment for the reason I did. And it's not the case. It's, no,
0: everyone has their own reason for being, their their own set of values, and that's okay.
1: It's fantastic. It's I mean, it's not just okay. It's that like,
0: diversity is I what makes it. life wonderful.
1: Yeah, it makes it. It certainly is one of the high points of this interview. Th- these these conversations for me is that to hear different people's perspectives and how family plays into it, and how oceans play into people who don't live near oceans anyway. And, you know, sometimes it's plastic and sometimes it's it's some positive thing that they really love. Sometimes it's some negative thing that they're really afraid of.
0: Well, there are some scientific realities. Humans do better when we have exposure to intact nature.
1: So walking in the woods is...
0: Well, walking in a park, if you live in a city, mm -hmm. sitting and watching the river go by, Paying attention to what phase the moon is in. When people are in touch with nature, even having a damn plant in your office, something that isn't human-made. So, for example, as we look out the window here, with the exception of the poor little plant sitting in the corner, there is nothing out there other than the sky that is not human-made.
1: Sorry, I'm just pausing it. (laughs) As I'm looking out the window, yeah, she's totally nailed it. Although the plant doesn't look so poor. The plant's doing well. They they take good care of their plants
0: here, LMHQ. But taking time every day to find a little bit of nature to connect with lowers your blood pressure, increases your happiness, just increases your sense of well-being. This is something that every one of us can do. And then start asking for more nature in our lives. Scientists say young people are growing up with nature deficit and that it is making us as a species less healthy. So again, this is something that everyone can do. Just taking the moment when you're walking, just going walking, Mm -hmm. but taking a moment and appreciating, oh, there's a pigeon. There's one little piece of nature. Actually, there are three pigeons.
1: pigeons.
0: And... Taking the time to say, "Oh, a little bit of wildlife, how cool!"
1: Now, as she pointed out the pigeons, I'm looking at the pigeons, and they're not only two pigeons. I think that they're courting. They are, yeah. <laughs> and which is kind of or interesting at least on its own. being friendly. Yeah, and the, it's not only that it's interesting, but also that's really intriguing. It's it's like uh, much more intriguing over here. I see there's like gargoyles on this building that are kind of cool looking, but they're not moving. Aesthetic. There's no volition. And then there's behavior, and you can connect with it, and I'm not going to empathize with pigeons, but there's <laughs> so certainly rash. life. And when I was looking over, on the, over my left shoulder instead, not only is there nothing that's not human-created, but there's actually no motion. The only thing I see moving is this plastic wrap on some scaffolding up there, and that was human-made and probably be around for a couple centuries.
0: All of this is to say, you know, my, my design friends say this is a design problem. We can design things better. We can design things that are more fun to live in, to be around, that are healthier for us. Good green buildings increase worker productivity. Again, if all you are, all you care about is the, uh, the bottom line. And this is an approach we call the integrated bottom line. People talk about the triple bottom line, that you should have three separate bottom lines, one for people, one for planet, in addition to profit. We come at it from this concept that if I can show you that behaving responsibly to people and planet is what drives your profitability, then you fold it in to your everyday decisions. This is, for example, what the company Unilever does. They're purpose-driven brands. They're brands that are in service to something greater than themselves are the their most profitable brands responsible for 60% of the company's profitability. So they've said to all their brands, find your authentic purpose in life. And it's a good exercise for each of us to do too. What is our purpose in life? Why are we here? What do we care about? What do we believe in? That, by the way, is really hard to do. Write down, what do I believe in? It's a hard exercise.
1: Oh, I, I'll, I'll offer... One way to simplify it, at least for me, and I don't know how well this applies to others, but is to have someone, to do that with someone else and to have the person ask you, what do you believe in? And then not to talk over you, but simply to ask confirmation, clarification questions. Some people will say, ask why five times in a row. I'd like to, like, if I ask someone, what do you believe in? They'll give me an answer. I just want to confirm and clarify what it is. And then I keep confirming and clarifying until the person says, yes, that's it. That's my tip. Is, it's hard to do it by yourself with just a sheet of white paper or an empty screen. But And now I'm also thinking, I remember last time we spoke about B Corps, and I, I wish I could get into that. I feel like if, if I get too long, then people might not download the episode, and I want people to listen to it. I want to wrap up with a couple of questions. Is there anything that I didn't think to bring up that is really top to bring up or any message directly to listeners?
0: Well, if, if folk want documentation of what I've been saying, check out the book. A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. 100 pages of footnotes. We sought to document everything. This book grew out of a fight at the Club of Rome where some of the people were saying, it's too late, there's nothing we can do. And I was arguing, as I did earlier, that yeah, we can solve these problems. We can solve them at a profit. When we do, we will have happier, more fulfilled lives. And they said, prove it. So I got with Stuart Wallace who for many years ran New Economics Foundation with Anders Wigman who was in the European Parliament works in Swedish climate policy and John Fullerton who for many years was on Wall Street left as uh, managing director at JP Morgan now runs a little group called Capital Institute to set forth a new narrative a story of how it is that we can conduct our lives, conduct our society in service to life as opposed to in service to finance.
1: So finer future, and if that's coming from the Club of Rome and is following in the the limits to growth spirit in some sense.
0: In, in every sense, uh, limits to growth was held up as a prognostication of doom and gloom. It I know wasn't. why people
1: looked at it that way. Well, but because I don't.
0: they ran a number of scenarios, most of which we crash and burn. But one of them, what they called sustainability, we, we make it. Now, my friend John Fullerton says, in nature, sustainability is the outcome of a regenerative system. And I think he's right. So I think we go beyond sustainability to build regenerative systems, which is what we attempt to lay out in the book. How do you do that? Citing examples of where it's been done and how doing this is more profitable.
1: Well, this may be just what I've been looking for. And sorry, I've only read past stuff, but not uh, more f- farther in the past stuff than more recent stuff. And was that the message to the listeners or is that something that I didn't think to bring up to ask?
0: That's the message to the listeners is that uh, we can do it. We know how to do it. When we do it, we will have happier, more fulfilled lives. Oh, and it's more profitable. This isn't about polar bears. This is about your life and how do you live and create a finer future.
1: Hunter Lovins, thank you very much.
0: Josh, it's been an honor.
1: My greatest interest in what Hunter said was what she said about the value of industries going to zero major global industries, how to prepare for it, what to do about it, and also that she still focuses on what you can do today, now, to reach big things. They, these industries, they will push back. I agree we have to figure out the effects of what we do with everything we do and to act and to prepare for others pushing back. The later points, what I'm about to say, are minor, but I'm going to mention them. I would love to find out that she's right, that changes we're doing anyway will result in results that we like on major global scales. But I still find that if we improve our lives on a personal level, a community level, and a cultural level, I think this kind of cultural change is something that we'll all value in a major way. Again, she still says that we have to work hard. Anyway. I'm not going to stop her from working on efficiency. I haven't read A Finer Future yet, but I don't think that, say, driverless cars will result in fewer miles driven or empty space. I think that as prices drop, people drive more for things that they didn't used to drive for. And if it turns out that we end up with empty spaces on our roads, I'm not so sure that we're going to turn that empty space into parks. I find limits to growth compelling. And if the Club of Rome, which sponsored limits to growth, motivated A Finer Future, I look forward to it. I'll include a link to a study that Hunter and I didn't talk about, but on limits to growth today. They followed up since the early predictions, what have we done? And it shows that of the many models that they predicted were possible, the business as usual model is the one that we seem to have tracked most closely. That's very important because it doesn't forebode well for humanity. If you look at where the business as usual model leads, the numbers working out to make cars more efficient. I think unless we change our values, we'll simply find more ways to drive more. As I put it, in another post, I see efficiencies as tactical and reduction as strategic. And I think the most effective way to change systems and the systems we have now are decreasing the Earth's capacity to sustain life in general and human society. And so, if we want to change our systems, I think the most effective way to do that is through changing the beliefs and goals of the system. Mainly for me, that means working on the cultural value of growth and I hope replacing it with something that we'll find more valuable of reducing and enjoying what we have. All that said, Systems can change from within. So the numbers may work out that if we keep working on efficiency, the system will change as a result. So that tells me to read A finer Future and look at the numbers from there. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and Living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.